Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. You can view the live stream on Facebook at Mother Miriam Live. Now, here's Mother Miriam. Good morning, beloved family. How are you? I pray that you are well. We are live today. I apologize about yesterday. Every once in a while, we need to run an encore, but we don't plan to do that the rest of this week. I'm so happy to be with you. We're still at Christmas tide. This is right after Epiphany, and uh, let's see, Epiphany's on the 6th, um, so we're still within the octave of the Epiphany, and it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful time. I just received a book, which I actually ordered by Bishop Fulton Sheen. I'm going to read you, if I can get through the very first chapter today, it's not that long. I won't read the whole book because I want to go back to teaching us the faith um, and reading through the Catechism Explained together uh, because it's so crucial for us to know and live our faith. But this book is Freedom Under God. Let me show it to you. Freedom Under God by Bishop Fulton Sheen. Um, It was written um, in 1940, and the back uh, description says, following World War I, humanity saw the rise of absolutist state power that characterized the 20th century, a trend that threatens to dominate the 21st, and it is dominating the 21st. Although speaking from a Catholic perspective, the renowned Fulton Sheen who lived from 1895 to 1979, touched people of all faiths and philosophies in common with political scientists and theologians throughout the ages. Sheen, in this book, Freedom Under God, traces the rise of state absolutism to loss of power by the vast majority of the people and loss of power to the lack of direct ownership of capital. Sheen understood the universal truth that as American statesman Daniel Webster observed, power naturally and necessarily follows property. The world, and and it's true, if you own nothing, you become a slave in this day and age to the state. Uh, You become a pawn to them. You you depend on them for, for a job, for food, for sustenance. But if you own land, you're protected. That's why Bill Gates is buying up half the property in this country and taking farms away from people left and right. We need to protect ourselves. And this continues, with citizens stripped of the means of economic independence, the state not only can decide how people practice their religion, but can dictate how they have children, how they raise children, what constitutes a family, how to live, and who may live. That's a reality in the United States of America today and other countries of the world, but it's a reality in this country, beloved. Nearly three quarters of a century ago, Fulton Sheen saw the dangers to the social order when people have no property and thus no power, falling helpless under the might of an all-powerful state. This book, Freedom Under God, is Sheen's warning and rallying cry, even more urgent today than when first published on the eve of World War II. 
I'm going to skip the whole introduction and go right, which I did read, and it's very good. But it's not. It's it's by another gentleman. The first chapter, and again, this book, I think, is going to be golden. The first chapter, and we read it last night in our priory with our sisters, um, is titled "The Relevance of Religion," and I want to read this because it it shows us how healthy, how right, how sane we are, not to cower because we're. Uh, because we love Christ, because we're Catholic, because we're Christian, not to cower, not to let people think we're not to be defensive in any way. Let me read this. What is the relation between religion and public affairs? To this question, two distinct answers have been given in the past century, both of which are wrong. First, Religion is irrelevant to public affairs. It's wrong that it has, it's irrelevant, has nothing to do with public affairs. That's wrong. And the second is religion is inimical to public affairs. It's opposed to it. It's actually hostile to it. That's not correct. Both of those are wrong. The age of liberalism believed that it was possible to serve both God and mammon. Religion was recognized as a kind of sentimental luxury to which a man might attach himself if he so desired, but it should be kept in a separate-rate compartment from the economic and political order. Six days a week were given to man to make a living. One day a week was given to rest. If, instead of resting, a man wished to go to church, that was his business. But under no circumstance must he bring church to work with him on Monday morning. Religion was considered a private matter. Business was public. Hence, it was not considered good form to bring up the subject of religion at a dinner party, though one might discuss his neighbor's politics or even his conscience no end. Politics and economics were fields in which each man was to be his own judge of what was right and wrong, and any attempt on the part of the church to suggest moral principles to govern those domains was regarded as an unwarranted intrusion. Religion was something one put on, like a suit of clothes, but was not an integral part of life, like seeing and hearing. This was the state of the world prior to World War II, and it is the state of the world today, beloved. A mental attitude thus grew up in which the great redemptive act of Calvary was presumed to have no significance for the social order. The soul became an unimportant suburb of the city called business. If politics and economics did not interfere with religion, they argued why should religion interfere with politics and economics? Religious liberty was thus purchased on the understanding that it would refrain from the secular order. Religion became a circumcised area, a circumscribed, pardon me, area of life, insulated from all contact with the secular, and any attempt on the part of religion to inject ethical and moral consideration into business was looked upon as meddling, as if the virtue of justice were something to be preached in a pulpit on Sunday, but not to be practiced in a factory on Monday. The world was willing to admit that religion could tell man about his final end, but it refused to allow religion to tell him the right means to attain that end. 
Religion came to stand in the same relation to world affairs as God did to Newton's astronomy. As Newton brought the universe under law, Newtonians assumed that God was no longer necessary to account for the order and harmony of the spheres, as if the discovery of a law did away with the necessity of the lawgiver. Newton dragged God into his universe to account for two irregularities which he could not fit into his law, namely, why certain fixed stars did not fall, and why certain orbs revolving in different orbits did not collide. You'd have to look up um, Newton to see his law. We studied it in school, high school. I don't want to take time now. for. I, I want to see if I can get through this chapter. God thus became a handy explanation to account for irregularities which science could not yet describe. A dignified cosmic plumber going about mending the leaks of a Newtonian universe. It's what happened when I was in, I'll just give this one example. It's hard for me not to comment at all. When I was in 10th grade, I was in Canada in Toronto in high school. And I remember our uh, I don't know what teacher he was, science or history or maybe both, social studies. He said, children, your parents have taught you about God. But, you know, we used to believe that uh, Thor was the god of thunder. And once science discovered what causes thunder, we didn't need Thor anymore. And so God is a catch-all term for whatever science doesn't yet understand. This is exactly what Bishop Sheen is, is saying here. In like manner, God was permitted to take care of the irregularities of the political and economic universe. That is, he and his believers could do ambulance work for the poor, the dependents and defectives, which the political and economic order could not yet absorb. Later on, with progress in science, even these social irregularities would disappear, and religion would no more be needed. <clears throat> In this way, religion was relegated to a place of retreat from the world, a catacomb into which men might go for a rest, but only after they had washed their hands of business. One would almost think that the man who went to church was different than the man who went to work, or that man as a political and economic creature had escaped in some miraculous way the fall of man. Isn't that amazing? You see a successful... A businessman, CEO of a huge corporation, and he's an atheist, he must have escaped the fall of man. He doesn't need a savior. He doesn't know he's a sinner. That's, of course, sarcastic. It's not true. When you see successful business people um, who have no need of God, beloved, they are the poorest of all. Whoever does not know that he is poor and wretched and needs a savior... Otherwise, he is on his way to hell because he cannot save himself. Whoever does not know that is the poorest of all. They're below the poorest of the poor. And we have an obligation, a duty, an obligation to tell them about the gospel. Even if they call us fools, we're fools for Jesus. So God bless you. And there's the music for our first break. I'm going to read as quickly as I can to get through this chapter after the second break, after this first break, rather. And after the second break, we'll tell you calls, your emails, um, and your text. Um, God bless you. We'll be right back. 
please join Father Mark Noonan in praying the Litany of Humility. O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being calumniated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I, Jesus grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be esteemed more than I, Jesus grant me the grace to desire it. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease, Jesus grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen and I set aside, Jesus grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be praised and I unnoticed, Jesus grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be preferred to me in everything, Jesus grant me the grace to desire it. That others may become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. I am Mother Miriam, and we are live. I'm absolutely thrilled to be with you. We are reading the first chapter only of a book by um, Bishop Fulton J. Sheen, uh, Freedom Under God, and it's just been republished. Um, It was a book he wrote in 1940 at the start of World War II, speaking about the taking over of civilization by totalitarianism, communism. And his book is perfect for today because that's exactly what's happening today. I'll continue to read where we we began, where we left off. Let's see. Religion came to stand in the same relation to world affairs as God did to Newton's... Oh, we read that. I'm so sorry. Here's his second point. This mental attitude of the irrelevance of religion to public affairs led to the second and more contemporary period when religion is considered inimical, that is, hostile, to public affairs. The transition is rather natural, for to say religion is irrelevant to the social order is, by that fact, to allow irreligion to preempt the social order. To leave religion out of public affairs is not like leaving blue out of a um, out of a crazy quilt. <clears throat> it's like plucking eyes out of the head. 
Blindness is the consequence of the doctrine that the eyes are irrelevant to life. Quarreling is the consequence of the doctrine that mutual love is irrelevant to the relations of husband and wife. Violence, disorder, bloodshed are the consequence of the doctrine that justice is irrelevant to the economic order. In like manner, leaving religion out of the social order is not a negation of something indifferent. It is a privation of something necessary. To leave justice, love, charity, human rights, and duties, all of which belong to religion, out of the secular order is like leaving the soul out of the body. To leave the soul out of the body is not to have a soulless body, but dissolution. To leave religion out of society is not to have a secular situation, uh, I'm sorry, is not to have a secular civilization, but chaos. Just look at the news reports every day. Chaos. History proves that a society which ignores religion never becomes just an irreligious society. It becomes anti-religious. And our society, beloved, has become anti-religious. Life is but the sum of forces which resist death. And once the resistance to those opposing forces ends, decay sets in. In like manner, the very second religion is denied relevance, the very second religion is denied relevance to the political and economic order, anti-religion take them over. The secular order never lives in a vacuum. It is never even neutral. If the citizens of any state abandon religion and their duty to render to God the things that are God's, Caesar will immediately claim uh, claim that even God derives his authority from Caesar. Every cheap pro- propagandist from Moscow and Berlin is then permitted to preach his atheism, remember this is written in 1940, and his racism, while the man of God who preaches justice and charity is regarded as an impractical intruder. Class hatred is the Dead Sea fruit of the irrelevance of charity. Dishonesty in politics is the sad heritage of the relevance of justice. Communism in national life is the result of the irrelevance of redemption and brotherly love. The world makes a great mistake in thinking that it can leave religion out of its pattern of national behavior and be the same world as before. This would be true if religion were only an accident of the social order, like horse racing, and not the sum of virtues which condition justice and peace. The empty house is, in the end, the ruined house, and the a-religious society is, in the end, the anti-religious society. A religion that does not interfere with the secular order will discover that the secular order will not refrain from interfering with it, just as a mother who will not refrain from correcting her disobedient children will soon have her children correcting her. The world which 20 years ago agreed that religion was unrelated to economics and politics is today a world that persecutes religion. It is not so much that violence, atheism, racism allow a decline in religion 
like a spanking follows an act of disobedience. It is rather that they are inseparable, like a decaying lily and a bad odor, or the sowing and the harvest. If a farmer does not plant wheat, he will not have a barren field in the fall. He will have weeds. Let men grow careless about whether their souls belong to God or to Caesar, and before they know it, Caesar owns them, body and soul. This is totalitarianism, or the state theory that the total or the whole of man belongs to the state. Such a regime must necessarily persecute religion, for to possess man it has to dispossess religion, which asserts that man has rights independent of the state. In theory, a totalitarian philosophy which denies the value of a human person apart from its inclusion in the race or the class is necessarily anti-religious. Totalitarianism has to be if it is to survive, for it can never possess the whole man until it dispossesses the church, which says the whole man does not belong to the state. The church stands in the way of such absorption of man into the totality, and for that reason is persecuted. Once the state includes the religious under the political, then every religious activity on the part of the church is regarded as political interference. Totalitarianism is wrong, not because it has a dictator, but because the dictator dictates even to the soul of man by making the person a means to an end, man an economic aspect of the state, or a drop of blood in the body politic, or a worker in a state factory. The more the church insists on its claim to the soul of man, the more it will be persecuted. That is why it has been called reactionary in Mexico, anti-revolutionary in Russia, political in Germany, counter-revolutionary in Barcelona. Caesar will always crucify Christ when Caesar believes himself to be God. What has taken place in the modern world is but a repetition of what happened in the beginning of the Christian era. First, the Son of God is ignored as irrelevant to the world, then he is persecuted. At first, he was considered as irrelevant to the world he came to save. Scripture says he came unto his own, his own received him not. He was not openly rejected, he was only ignored. There was no act of violence against him as his mother went from door to door in the village of Bethlehem. There was simply no room. After all, what relation has religion to economics? And what relation has God to the world? Men were then too busy with their little cash boxes and their ledgers and their taxes to bother with the Creator. Just as now they are too busy with their business and their politics. He can come into the world if he wants to, but let him find his own place. There's no room here. In order the better to signify that man had rejected his maker, he is forced out of the city into the hills, away from the inns, out to the stables, away from humans among the beasts. And as one looks down on that infant who was crowded out of the earth, 
that he had made and literally pushed out of the city of his father's, lying on a bed of straw between an ox and an ass, one cannot help but see in those beasts the symbol of human rejection. There was no room in the inn. Religion, we said before, is first ignored, then persecuted. Indifference to religion is the beginning of hatred to religion, hatred of religion. So it was with Christ. At his birth, men paid no attention to him. They just slammed the doors in the face of his mother. Within two years, they are hunting him down as a criminal. At first, they are indifferent as to whether he is born. Now they are intolerant about his being born at all. At first, they merely do not want him in their inns. Now they do not want him on their earth. At first, he is so irrelevant to their lives, they leave him to their irrelevant beasts. Now he is considered inimical, hostile, to their lives, and more dangerous than beasts. They will now not even leave him in their stables, as Russia will not leave him in its tabernacles. Again, 1940, this was written. This is America today as well. The order goes out from Herod that every male child under two years of age must be slaughtered. No king can be supreme if this new infant king also lays claim to kingship. Herod cannot totally own man if this child calls himself man's king. He who at first despised the child now fears the child. The shepherd's cave now becomes the outlaw's den as Herod sends forth his soldiers, darting like hawks in pursuit of an infant that has only learned to walk. Irreligion has preempted the palace vacated by religion. Persecution followed indifference. The slaughter of the innocents came in the wake of the birthday of the innocent one. Indifference to Christ does not and cannot end in Christlessness. It ends in Antichrist. It was that way in the beginning. It is that way now. And it shall be so until the end. Europe has been taught to clench its fists and to spit whenever his name is mentioned. They cannot leave him alone. They are not just just they are not just men without religion. They are men against religion. They are not cold to God. They are on fire with godlessness. Where do they get their energy for such hate? Where such enthusiasm for atheism? Where such an apostolate, an apostolate for Antichrist? Where so many swords for pillage of the things of God and murder of the women of God? Where did Russia get its spark to set up in Valencia for the first time in the history of the Western world a definitively anti-God regime? It got it from the reality of God. Men do not enthuse about ghosts. Men do not go out to do battle against figments of the imagination, nor the dead. But they do hate the living. In rejecting him, they are testifying to him. No one hates Caesar or Napoleon or Genghis Khan. Why not? Because hate dies when the object hated perishes. Men no longer clinch fists over a Bismarck or stand guard over a tomb of Nelson. 
but they do still clench fists over Christ. They say he is dead, but they set up watch over his tomb. They say he is helpless now, as a babe, but Herod still sends out soldiers to kill the harmless babe. Uh, started drinking beer on Saturday nights, uh, sleeping in on Sunday mornings, missing mass, and then it just became a pattern and continued. Without God, I don't know where I'd be right now. I feel like I'm whole again. I know the importance of the Eucharist. I know the importance of the sacraments that I didn't know at a young age. I follow God's will because my desire is to get to heaven. Our, our lives are rich and full by being members of the church. If you've been away from the Catholic Church, visit catholicscomehome.org. This is Franciscan Media's Saint of the Day for January 10th. Today we celebrate St. Gregory of Nyssa. Some things run in families. A sense of humor, certain kinds of skills, curly hair. Holiness ran in the family of today's saint. Gregory of Nyssa was the son of two saints and the sibling of two others. Born around 330 in modern-day Turkey, Gregory put aside a teaching career to study theology and prepare for the priesthood. He was already married, but there was no impediment to his ordination, as he lived at a time when celibacy was not a matter of law for priests. Gregory was elected bishop during a period of great tension over the Arian heresy, which denied the divinity of Christ. He was briefly arrested after being falsely accused of embezzling church funds. He wrote with great effectiveness against Arianism and other questionable doctrines popular in the 4th century church. His reputation as a defender of orthodoxy gained him great prominence, and he was often sent on missions to uphold the faith. Today, St. Gregory of Nyssa is regarded as not only a pillar of orthodoxy, but also as one of the great contributors to the mystical tradition in Christian spirituality and to monasticism itself. He died in 395. There's more about the saints along with inspiration and Catholic resources at our website, saintoftheday.org. From Franciscan Media, this has been Saint of the Day. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. We are live. We're thrilled to be with you. And now we have an entire half hour all to ourselves. I was hoping to get through the first chapter. We could not. In the first half hour of uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen's Freedom Under God uh, that he wrote uh, at the start of World War II in 1940, it's been republished today because our situation in the world, and especially in the United States, is uh, mirroring the situation at the start of World War II with the encroachment of communism and totalitarianism. And Bishop Sheen warns this. He says, We are concerned with property in relation to freedom because the ownership of external things is the sign of freedom. The Church has made the wide distribution of private property the cornerstone of her social program. It's probably the most valuable thing we could have, beloved. If we have a little property, we can grow food on it, we can collect water on it, we can prepare for what is coming. Um, 
I mentioned that Bill Gates is buying up as much property in this country, taking away from farmers as he possibly can. So as we prepare, not panic, but prepare for the times that are coming and are already upon us. If you have a little piece of property, don't give it up unless you're able to get other property, but don't give it up. Find a way, learn how to grow food, have a greenhouse, or do whatever you can. Uh, Get a a, um, rain barrel to collect rainwater. Do what you can to protect yourself. But when you're on your own land, you have an amount of protection uh, that you may not otherwise. And you can consecrate that land as well. uh, to to God through exercised holy water and exercised salt, um, I I recommend that you do that. So um, we're going to go on now to take your calls, your texts, your emails, um, and the toll free number one eight seven seven five one one five four eight three, or email at mother at thestationofthecross dot com. We have an email from Margaret who says, Dear Mother Miriam, on December 7th, I watched your presentation about Mary, the mystical rose. On December 8th, those who went to a church at noon and read the 51st Psalm three times and spent an hour praying would receive a miracle as long as it is God's will. It's not the exact wording. I'll read you the exact wording. She says, My grandson, who is 30 and has a good job, is addicted to heroin and has tried three times to quit but has failed. He is also a faithful Catholic. On December 8th at noon, I went to the church and followed your instructions. And hopefully, if you follow them, they're not my instructions. They're the instructions of our Blessed Mother. I should add that I went to Mass that morning, as I do every day, and prayed the Rosary, as I do every day. However, no miracle. He is still addicted. How could this possibly be God's will, Margaret? It is absolutely not God's will that he be addicted. We know that. Uh, The exact wording of... um, of uh, oh dear I just I lost the page um, it doesn't say a miracle that will occur it said whoever prays the 51st psalm three times with their arms uh, um, uh, extended uh, for an hour um, uh, their prayer will be granted now um, God hears prayer don't say he doesn't answer it he always does He may say yes. Uh, He may say no, not in the way you're asking me. Um, He may say yes, but we need to wait. Um, Because it may, you say your your son is a devout Catholic, and yet your grandson, rather, and he's 30, um, he's addicted to heroin. There's a way you got addicted to heroin, and that's not through being a devout Catholic. And our Lord um, may not want to cure him instantly. He may want to bring him to the bottom of his life till he has nothing left but to look up. Because it could be that if God knows that if he's instantly cured, he'll go back to it. Or he won't be devoted to God. He'll just be free of the addiction. God knows the heart. It is, if it's your desire that your grandson not be addicted, you can trust 
God's desire is greater. And if he doesn't answer your prayer in the timing and the way you're, you're asking him, it's because God's plan is better for your grandson's soul. Um, and maybe he's tried three times to quit. Maybe he'll get the help. He'll humble himself and get the absolute help that he needs. God may prefer that rather than doing an instant miracle. God alone knows what's best, not for God, but for the soul of your grandson. You need to trust in him. <clears throat> so again, Margaret, it's not God's will that your son be addicted to her- grandson be addicted to heroin, but it is God's will that your grandson turn to him no matter the cost. We have an email from Michelle who says, Hello, Mother Miriam, how are you? I'm fine, Michelle, thank you. She says, I really love listening to your show and the advice you give. I want to ask about missing Mass. I recently did not go to Mass because I had a bad cough and cold. Um, I want to ask if I am in grave sin because of this. No, you are not. Do I need to go to confession before I receive communion? No, you do not. She says, thank you and God bless, Michelle. If you're really sick... Um, God does not expect you to go to Mass and you haven't committed a grave sin and you're able to receive our Lord um, without first going to uh, confession. But I do suggest that when you go to confession, you include the fact that you did not attend church on that previous Sunday um, just so that you leave everything in God's hands, even though you could say to him, I, I, don't, I don't believe it was a sin. I was really sick, and I have received communion since. Um, but I want to tell you about it if there's any part of this that I wasn't aware of before God. <coughs> Sorry, I had something in my throat. We have an email from Wesley. Wesley says, Greetings, Mother. I just wanted to email you and say thanks for providing content that has allowed me to grow deeper into my Catholic faith. Blessed be God for that, Wesley. After watching and reflecting on the episode entitled Living the Faith Daily, the Rule of St. Benedict for the Laity, I've decided to become a novice oblate at Subiaco. Fantastic. Subiaco. Subiaco Abbey in Subiaco, Arkansas. Didn't they have a, a storm or an earthquake soon, uh, recently rather? I think something happened there recently. <clears throat> Wesley says, being 36 years old, I wish more people would be aware of obliture and what it's like to live the rule to the best of my ability in today's secular world. In one of your upcoming episodes, could you please talk about being coming an oblate and what we can do to attract the younger generations to this calling? Any book recommendations while I'm going through this process? God bless you, Wesley. God bless you, Wesley. Absolutely, yes. To be um, to be a not to be an oblate is to give yourself as an oblation, an offering. It's, it's actually, if you're in the Latin Mass, today's reading from St. Paul, present your life, Romans chapter 12, as a living sacrifice, which is your regional service of worship. And don't be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what is the perfect and acceptable will of God. It's a beautiful verse. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 
to be an oblate is to give your life an offering of an oblate of St. Benedict, of the rule of St. Benedict, means that you live the rule of St. Benedict not as a religious but as a lay person. There's no penalty for not praying. There's no penalty for not keeping an exact schedule because your vocation is absolutely first to your family and to your work. Um, We, the Daughters of Mary, Mother of Israel's Hope, you're welcome to go on our website. We have oblates. Oblates of the Daughters of Mary, absolutely. And we're Benedictine, again, just as Subiaco. Um, and if you look on our website, if you wish, uh, just a few tabs in from the left, you will see Mary's Oblates. And that's for single men, single women, women and whole families, or just couples. And talking about um, uh, helping the young, we have entire families that live by the rule, where the father reads from the rule every night, and it's a commentary for oblates on the rule of St. Benedict. You can get it. I'm looking it up on Amazon. It's close to $46. It's called <clears throat> Commentary for Benedictine Oblates on the Rule of St. Benedict. Commentary for Benedictine Oblates on the Rule of St. Benedict by um, Simon and Doyle, S-I-M-O-N and Doyle, D-O-Y-L-E. I will tell you that because we have uh, a multitude of oblates, we have gotten a wonderful discount on that book and we're able to offer it uh, for half price, uh, a little less than half actually. So... um, You are welcome to uh, go to our website to download from Mary's Oblates the application form. What do you have to do to be an oblate? What are the requirements? You simply need to love God and love the church and want to know how to live for God within um, uh, your faith, the Catholic faith, more deeply. And it's, it's all scriptural and it's absolutely beautiful. And again, you can you can download uh, a few of the newsletters we've had for oblates um, uh, and get a good start on that and just send the application in to us. If you send a check for $20 along with it, we will send you the entire commentary and a blessed medal of St. Benedict. Um, so you're welcome to do that. If you've become an oblate or novice, because that's a, a, a beginning stage, uh, Subiaco or any other, Clear Creek Abbey has a wonderful oblate program. Um, and so many, many uh, good Benedictine orders have uh, a good oblate program. So look that up, and um, it's good advice. Wesley, God bless you. And you, you're welcome to get that book. <clears throat> we have an email from somebody who writes it anonymously and says, Hello, Mother Miriam. I have a question about my marriage and my husband. In recent months, my husband had become an abusive alcoholic. I'm so sorry. My goodness. We have a new six-month-old daughter together. Now, I don't know if that means you have other children or you're newly married. I don't know your situation. And she writes, I have since placed a restraining order on him. I know divorce is against the Catholic Church. 
So what more do I do that is acceptable in the eyes of the church? Thank you, Anonymous. You are right to place a restraining order on him. So that's, I'm guessing, that he's not allowed to come home, if that's the case. Um, That's all. Forget divorce, forget anything else. If you're separated from him because he's abusive, that's the wise thing to do. And you just be as holy as you can, as loving as you can, raise your children, teach them the faith at home, and do all that you can to pray for your husband and be a loving wife. Speak the truth in love. Be compassionate and speak the truth in love. Don't fight. Don't order him around. But if he's abusive, you're right to have a restraining order and to separate. But... um, if he's out of the home and you can continue to live in the home, that's that's the best. Um, never say an angry word or a negative word to your children about their father. Never. Live the life of walking and speaking the truth in love and pray and offer sacrifices for him. There's the music for our final break, beloved. We'll have 10 minutes when we come back. Our lines are wide open. You're welcome to call with anything at all on your heart. Toll free 1-877-511-5483. We'll be right back. Hello, beloved. This is Mother Miriam. Many of you are familiar with Mother Miriam Live. But I wonder if you have listened to some of the other programs from the Station of the Cross, such as The Catholic Current. Father Robert McTagg discusses important topics in the church and in the world each weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern. You can listen anytime to The Catholic Current as a podcast on the iCatholic Radio mobile app. The Station of the Cross thanks our supporters who have enabled us to broadcast Catholic programs for more than 20 years. As a nonprofit lay organization financially independent from your diocese, our apostolate is listener-supported. Through your generosity, we are able to inspire countless listeners with the gospel message and help lead them to a parish to be spiritually nourished by the sacraments. Thank you for your continued support, and may God bless you and your family. The Station of the Cross is listener-funded, and we value your ongoing generosity. In this fast-paced world, it's easy to let your recurring donation slip due to something like a new address or a card number change. If you suspect that we might not have your up-to-date donor information, you can check with us during regular business hours at 1-877-888-6279, extension 104, or anytime online at thestationofthecross.com. The Catholic Current, bringing Christ to the world and the world to Christ. You are worth my time. You're worth my undivided attention. God is blessing us by putting us uh, together. It's funny because people talk about quality time, and honestly, I think it's more about quantity time. (laughs) But if you're actually engaged with them, whatever it is you're doing, you're spending quality and quantity time with them. The Catholic Current, 5 p.m. Eastern, from the Station of the Cross and on the iCatholic Radio mobile app. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome. 
Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. This is our last segment. We have 10 minutes. Our lines are well open, are, um, are open, and you are very welcome to call in with anything whatsoever on your heart. Toll free, one 511 5483 or email at mother at the We have an email from Michelle. More Michelle's today. Dear Mother Miriam, my daughter has the idea that our prayers do not affect the outcome of situations because the outcome of every situation is already predetermined by God. That's not true. And she needs to tell you where she gets that answer. We are not robots. God tells us to pray um, and that uh, what we need, we pray for. The prayers of a holy man uh, are effective, James says. Um, We are to pray for what we need. God is not a, um, he's not there to fool us. Uh, he's not there to lie to us. He's not there to have us have a useless exercise. The outcome of every situation is not predetermined by God. Um, and uh, Michelle said she, her daughter, came to this conclusion when her prayers and the prayers of her family and friends failed to prevent the death of her husband. Well, that's, she's not even thinking well. I don't know how old your daughter is and how she concluded that, but I would tell her she's not wiser than God. And our prayers do not change things. There's a saying, prayers change things. They do not. God is sovereign, and he is a God of love. And God changes things through our prayers. We are not all wise. We do not know what is best for every soul. It might be best for that soul that he dies physically, that he might yet enter into eternity rather than he live longer and deny God. God knows. God knows what is best for every soul. And if we think we're God, um, we're in a poor state. So Michelle says, could you please clarify what is happening when our prayers do not affect the outcome of situations? They do affect the outcome of situations. If we pray, Lord, heal, heal my husband, but if we always say, thy will be done, not mine, then we know that God is answering our prayer in the best way possible for the beloved for whom we pray. Not our will, but thy will and not ours. That's what Jesus said. Lord, in agony in the garden, let this cup pass from me. What cup? His death on the cross. When our sins nailed him to the cross. Nonetheless, he said, not my will but thine be done. Was his prayer not answered? Of course it was answered. He said, not my will but thine be done. And God accomplished his perfect will. And yes, not ignoring Jesus' prayer, but answering it. And that's the way our prayers need to be. Does not being in a state of grace hinder the efficacy of our prayers? It, it well might. Again, even if we're in a perfect state of great grace, God does not owe us the outcome of our desires. He owes us nothing. He loves us too much to go along with what we want. If we say, Lord, I really want this, but thy will not mine, we can be sure that God's will would be done. It might be our will, but it might not be our timing. Are there other circumstances, Michelle says, which hinder the efficacy of our prayers? Well, sin will always hinder that. Um, 
um, sin will always hinder that. Praying against God's will will hinder that. If we want our will apart from God's, we're just talking to ourselves. We're shutting God out. If we want God's will above all things, God understands how much a wife loves her husband, how much a parent loves his or her child. God understands that. And if he lets the child or the spouse die, and we have prayed what we want, but thy will be done, O Lord, we can be sure that God's wisdom and love is much greater than ours. I know that there are time years back that I... I would have given anything for God to answer my prayer according to how I wanted it. And it took about 20 years to pass for me to get down on my knees and thank him for not answering that prayer the way I wanted it. God is perfect in his ways. His love is perfect. Michelle says, thank you so much for your ministry, Mother. Thank you, Michelle. We have a text from Gigi who says, Hello, Mother Miriam. Do parents have a moral obligation to flee the state of California where the dangers, both spiritual and physical, of raising children are too high? Thank you, Mother Miriam, and God bless you, Gigi. No, you do not have a moral obligation. If your circumstances allow you to not come under the laws of the state of California and to uh, move and get another place, certainly get a little bit of land, that would be the wisdom. That would be very good. But you don't have a moral obligation. You have a moral obligation to flee evil and to not subject your family to it. So if you remain in California, you have to remain faithful to God no matter what. We have a text from somebody who writes it anonymously and says, My wife is wondering how to find a spiritual director. We have been 100% faithful traditional Catholics since 2006 before Samorum Pontificum. And sadly, I cannot imagine approaching a Novus Ordo slash conciliar priest. Our children are homeschooled and have never seen the inside of a government school. Well, God bless you. God bless you, dear ones. Um, There are very good, holy, Novus Ordo conciliar priests. There are. And there are those that also celebrate the Latin Mass, that do both, because their bishops have asked them to do both. And there are those that have been uh, prevented from uh, celebrating the Latin Mass, such as... um, Cardinal uh, Archbishop Gallagher has just done in Wisconsin, um, prevented the Latin Mass, and these priests must celebrate the Novus Ordo. So don't don't eliminate that totally. If you're going to a Latin parish, I would go to your priest first um, and ask if he... uh, if you wished him to be your spiritual director, if he could manage could manage that. Normally, it's once a month that you would meet with your spiritual director. If he could manage that, would be great. If not, if he could recommend a good holy priest. Um, And so find priests that maybe you could drive to within an hour or so. Um, If if your parish priest is not available or or another parish priest nearby, um, find another Latin parish perhaps or other good holy priests that you can approach. Um, There's a book out called 
Spiritual Direction, that's the title of it. It's by Father Thomas Dubay, D-U-B-A-Y, which is no longer, he's no longer alive. Beautiful holy priest. And the entire book is tells you how to find and discern a spiritual director and what to do until you find such a one. Very good book. So I would, I would do that. And again, um, look for, if your own priest cannot assist you in this way, I would look for a, um, another Latin priest, if possible, in the diocese um, and, and see if you, he will meet with you. All right. Or other good holy priests, ask your priest um, uh, what, who he might recommend. God bless all of you, dear ones, and um, be faithful. It's the time now to gather your family. If you have any children still in public school, you're going to need to get them out very, very, very soon. You should already have them out. And most Catholic schools, they should not attend because Catholic schools are Catholic in name only now. There are, there are faithful, but you need to be sure because they're few and uh, far between. So God bless you, dear ones, and we'll speak with you, God willing, tomorrow.